Welcome into the conversation on TYT. I am Adrian Lawrence, and I'm guest hosting today. And I'm also bringing you two very impactful voices. And the first up is Darrell Bradford, the executive vice president of 50CAN. Uh, that's a nationally supported education advocacy org. And the man has, what, some 14 years working experience in education reform, policy, and advocacy. So, Darrell, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yes, and there's so much going on, and that has been going on all year long in terms of COVID-19, and then now we have these nationwide protests. But kind of just stepping back to the time when we had essentially a pandemic that was the most pressing thing before us, you know, there was nationwide closures of nearly, what, 125,000 schools impacting some 55 million students. That's instructional time, college readiness. But as I understand it, Black students suffer the most. Can you expound upon that? Yeah, so uh, uh, one of the things I like to, uh, to tell people or sort of start when I get in these conversations about distance learning and what happened when the districts and schools of all types, public, private, charter, um, all shut down as a result of the, the crisis, um, is that COVID shines a spotlight on every inequity in our society. Um, and so if it's the fact that, you know, Black folks, low-income folks, or uh, people of color work disproportionately in the service industry or might live in multi-generational households with old people, young people all coming in and, and you know, in a high-contact way. And that that was part of the reason why those communities were hardest hit by the, by the virus. Um, you just got to add all that up and, and, and consider it as well. But when the districts closed down, very few of them actually had real plans to teach online. Um, and, and there are lots of reasons for that. Uh, one of them was that lots of districts hadn't invested a ton in, in technology. Some did, some didn't. And, and that broke down along economic lines, like rich, rich districts had it and lots of poor dis districts did not. You know, um, Lots of, uh, like New York City, uh, really did a very slapdash job of trying to train its teachers even to teach folks online, right? And, and then there's a whole, the whole challenge of internet connectivity and devices. Like, yeah, everybody may have a cell phone, but not everybody has stable Wi-Fi at home. Even if you have Wi-Fi, you know, it's, it's nicer to have a computer than, you know, than just a, a handheld. Uh, sometimes if there are a lot of kids in the house, there's only one computer. Everybody can't be on it at the same time. And so when you add all that up, you, you sort of have a perfect storm that winds up hitting low-income kids hardest, and that's what's happened. The one thing I do want to say, uh, some of the data that's come out about this that's really important, is that uh, low-income families spend just as much time trying to get their kids educated online as rich families do. And so despite the disparities in some of the results we, we've seen, and we can talk about some more, um, I find it heartening that uh, in the middle of the crisis, the, the idea that black families don't care about their kids is being dispelled by black families. And I think that's a very important takeaway. Yes, Darrell, I'm really glad you raised that point because there is a lot of ignorance out there and thinking that black people are not as invested in their children's education. And we know that not to be true. And recently you wrote an article for the 74. Uh, it was titled Black Lives Matter and Black Education Matters Because Freedom Matters. And in that article, you said, we can't have an all education matters approach to the challenges of black education. What did you mean by that? Yeah, so it, you know, it took me uh, a long time to get over the target of being able to describe that that way. So uh, you know, I say this in the article too. I've been black my whole life. I had a black life. It's real important to me, right? <laughs> that is a lot, to, a lot to me. Um, 
And, uh, and you know, but like if, uh, if 10 people are standing on a street corner and one person gets hurt, that's the person you give the Band-Aid to, right? It's not an insult to get to not give a Band-Aid to nine people who aren't hurt, right? And, and Black Lives Matter activists, I think, have really um, cut to the core of the fact that if the least of among you, right, if the most put upon among you are not safe, then no one is safe. Exactly. And, right? And so our American public education system is designed for everybody. And it is it has historically been designed for an everybody that's not African-Americans. We're, we're the only people in the history of this nation who have been um, uh, denied freedom and education through public policy. Like, like not, not because, it, not through scarcity, because it, it was a matter of law that that could not happen. And if you take that history and you add it up, how can you take the solutions of uh, a leafy, you know, uh, Iowa suburb and drop them down in bed stock. You just can't do it, you know? And, and it just, occur- it has occurred to me, it occurs to me and a lot of people that uh, black folks, we need our own thing. We need something different that is just about us. We, we need a black education matters solution that respects our history and our fears and our hopes and our dreams in a way that the current system just just doesn't do. Absolutely. And the fact that, you know, we are kind of in a situation where we spend a fair amount of our time in public spaces in fear because of the Amy Coopers of the world, uh, the white woman in Central Park who called the police on the black man or because of the police. So the thought that we could sit in educational institutions and learn the same is not necessarily the case. And I also wanted to hit on another similar point. We have Education Week saying that American public schools are gonna need 70 billion for the next three years in terms of federal stimulus. And then at the same time, we have this movement pushing to defund the police as in, don't give the police so much of your budget. So what kind of parallels do you really see between the education and the criminal justice system? Oh, what a good good question. You you look like you do this for a living. Uh (laughs) So um, the police, right, as a a workforce, they they mirror teachers as a workforce. And, you you know, I want to be careful about this because in both places, right, there are people who want the best for everyone. And in both places, there's like a small percentage of people who are just who should be doing something else. Right. Um, and in the police force, the person who should be doing something else, if they are empowered and protected, they can end your life. And in schools, the person who is in charge of teaching you, if they aren't particularly good at it and are empowered and protected, they can make sure you never become the person you're meant to be. And so that's not an attack on either institution. It's just a sort of a realization of the thing. Um, but I fa- I had found it interesting that um, uh, people are saying for the police, uh, government can't do this. Get like turn it all over to civil society. And it's like, well, you know, I, I might be in the I might be in the middle of that, right? Like this, there's a lot of stuff that we could turn over to civil society, but the police protect our freedoms. Like, how do we do that better? And then on the other side, for education, people are like, the government is the only entity that can do this. And I'm like, I don't know how that works. <laughs> like if if it's if over here the the church and the you know and the and the the local grandma and the Kiwanis Club or whatever right have a role to have a role to play over here you know those institutions probably have a, have a role to play too and it's and it's local and it's contextual so it's been interesting to see the same arguments emerge in reverse depending on what the uh, what the issue is I guess I would just say that like I'm given where Black Lives Matter is in particular you know this 
Like, I'm happy to see the discussion is at that place where somebody wants to do something. Like, the, the president, for all his flaws, like, he signed an executive order today. Like, four years ago, we would have been like, what? Like, is that ever going to happen? So there, there has been progress. I, I'm, I'm heartened by that against this, uh, this dangerous backdrop we live in. Oh, absolutely. And also just the fact of uh, the administration in which we live and yeah. kind of the pressures that are put on the educational system to continue to function without the needs uh, that it essentially needs. Well, and and, I, can I say I, one thing? Yeah. yeah so, so the number you cited, it, 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 uh, $75 billion was the ask for what's called CARES. So like I know your, your listeners are astute. So the last stimulus package. Um, folks are talking 250 now, 250 billion. Um, and uh, like on the one hand, I always sort of joke about this because the letter that the big city school superintendent signed about this was basically like, we know it's a lot of money, so we'll take it in installments, you know. Um, but uh, on the other side of it, this is the only time that the federal government has ever shut down both the economy and schools of all types. And so they, they are implicated in some of these revenue shortfalls. And, and even I've like, I've argued that like, look, more money for our schools. Like, you know, you, you can't expect people to deal with high, like all the problems of reintegrating kids back in school, maybe having to be some kids at home, some kids in school, some teachers retiring, cleaning buildings, whatever, with the same price tag. That, 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 doesn't, that doesn't seem right to me. All right, Darrell. Well, you provided some incredible insight, but one question I definitely have for you, and I want to make sure you get this in, because, you know, there are a lot of issues that are pouring out in our feeds and in our world right now. But what is the one thing about education that you think isn't getting kind of the uplifting, the notice, eyes on it that we should be focusing on? Yeah, I mean, you know, right now there are schools that are beating the odds. And I think that's the important thing. Uh, and we actually knew where, there where they were in states all across uh, America and cities all across America who were helping all kids and in particular low-income kids of color become the best version of themselves, go on to college, change the world and get justice for George Floyd. Um, and I think when we have some sanity about our lives again, we should look at what is there because it's there already and we should change public policy so there can be more of it. All right. Well, this is Darrell Bradford. And Darrell, can you please tell us where can people find you on social media? So I'm at Dernwin, D-Y-R-N-W-Y-N, because I'm a huge nerd, uh, on Twitter. Uh, and you can find me talking about education and soccer there at any time. Fantastic. And I will be sharing that article you wrote that's very powerful. Thank you again, Darrell. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Welcome back to The Conversation on TYT. I'm Adrian Lawrence. And for our second impactful voice today, we bring you Kenya Evelyn. She's a breaking news reporter for The Guardian U.S., and she's been doing some pretty incredible things in terms of enlightening us on COVID-19 as well as these protests. Thank you for joining us, Kenya. Thank you for having me. All right, Kenya. So you have written a very, just a true, enlightening piece um, talking really about COVID-19 fears and how they're intersecting with this George Floyd protest and this whole revolution and movement. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? 
Sure, absolutely. Uh, you know, before people even knew that what we have later learned is that George Floyd essentially had the coronavirus himself. He was asymptomatic at the time. He was killed by a white Minneapolis police officer. And it, he was even economically impacted, which we have seen a majority of African-Americans disproportionately are. He lost his job as a bouncer at a, a nearby club and restaurant after the shutdown uh, with Minnesota's stay-at-home order. So before we even knew, though, those details about his personal life, People seem to resonate with this particular death by police, uh, another instance of police brutality and a black man dying at the hands of white law enforcement. This just resonated with people in a different way, considering that essentially um, what I think my Michael Acronel said beautifully online was that black people are dealing with three pandemics right now. We have a, a coronavirus epidemic, excuse me, a coronavirus pandemic that is disproportionately impacting black Americans, where we see a third of all cases and COVID-19 COVID-19 deaths are coming from black Americans and even the Caribbean immigrant community in New York City. And that is also resonating uh, with black Americans as we see numbers begin to tick. More than 23 states have, have announced numbers have been on the rise since states have begun lifting their economic restrictions and stay at home orders. And even with among those states, 13 have, have reported having cases, the highest number of new cases at all during this pandemic. And that's disproportionately as well impacting black Americans. And then the second element of this pandemic is in the economic downturn, where hundreds of thousands of black Americans, a majority of whom are represented of those who more than half of this country that make less than $40,000 a year, lost their job in the first few months of this pandemic. And so this is this second economic downturn or this second pandemic is, is impacting black Americans disproportionately as well. And that created this environment where when you're dealing with the everyday institutional aspects of being black in America, where you are, it's particularly in Minnesota, 13 times more likely to die at the hands of police. This can represent an issue that just was essentially where people felt enough is enough. And we see these protests and demonstrations all around the country. And George Floyd became a representation of that, both in his life and in his death. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting, kind of those points that you make in part, because I've been having conversations with people where they ask us, aren't you afraid to go out and protest because you might get COVID-19? But the reality is I might get killed by cops. My every day is one of living in distress and my future looks bleak and uncertain as a result of the systemic oppression that goes on in our society. So going out into the streets is not necessarily my concern as opposed to my daily life. And I know you talked a little bit about already in terms of Caribbean individuals being um, targeted by police or being victims of police violence and brutality. And you do also kind of focus a little bit on the Caribbean diasporas. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. One thing that gets lost in terms of the numbers of black Americans who are disproportionately dying in New York City is that many of these uh, deaths that go un underreported are of Caribbean immigrants. Those from we see places uh, with disproportionate number of cases, particularly in Jamaica, Guyana, Trinidad and Tobago, and then even uh, newly places like the Dominican Republic and Cuba. And so where this is impacting diasporas is this oftentimes these are the, the pillars of communities, those who have created staples of the diaspora, whether 
it be restaurants or whether it be media organizations, oftentimes these are the cornerstones of communities that have essentially become a dominant force in New York City. And we see that that is not, so they're not exempt from a pandemic that is disproportionately impacting black Americans uh, overall in this country. And that means they're also not exempt. We're seeing that they're also not exempt from the institutional issues that people even say is also a pandemic. Institutional racism is a pandemic in the United States. It's a public health issue that many doctors and health professionals are even recognizing. And Caribbean Americans aren't exempt from that. We've seen some instances where uh, recent cases of those who were killed by at the hands of law enforcement, particularly white law enforcement or even white vigilantes, have been Caribbean immigrants, those from Antigua, from Haiti, as well as Jamaica. And it definitely speaks to the vulnerability of that population. But kind of switching um, to a kind of a somewhat of a related topic, you know, we've seen with these changes and this uprising how the media has been handling it. Like a number of people, fortunately, are moving away from the term African-American as it is exclusive as opposed to being inclusive and recognizing that not all people of color or black people are African origins or African-American, whether they may be Caribbean. Can you talk a little bit more about the changes you've recognized as a member of the media since we've had this uprising? Absolutely. I think it's even just uh, in learning that, you know, six years ago, we were talking about Mike Brown um, in his body being on the on the pavement of Ferguson, Missouri for four hours. And before we could even see his body be taken away, we were digging into his background as a person uh, to essentially what happens often disproportionately with black people in this country and in our media is that we dig into their backgrounds to in a way justify what their their fate, how they died. And in doing so, I think there were many mistakes made and many lessons learned for those of us in the media. One, and that we don't always take the the police reports at at first hand or, or at their word. And we are a little bit more scrutinous now, as we've seen, where even, you know, um, a 75-year-old man could have tripped and fa- fallen, but we actually see within a video that he was pushed by police officers and bleeding from his head. Um, so, you know, I think there's just mistakes made, or we're learning from mistakes made, those of us in the media, and how to delicately represent the the diversity of uh, being black in America, how that can represent different communities of black people in America, and how that can disproportionately reflect your experience here, whether you are an immigrant worker who makes up 40, excuse me, 75% of the meatpacking industry, uh, those who particularly may be from Somalia or Ethiopia, in Minnesota, in places like Iowa and Kansas, or those from the Caribbean, as we see in New York City, or even those from Nigeria and uh, Ghana and, and places like Texas and Atlanta. So, you know, these are these are different uh, communities of black Americans who may not necessarily be descended from those of the enslaved who became who were, you know, enslaved in what became the United States. But they are instrumental parts of U.S. history and uh, current experiences of disproportionately frontline workers and those who are also impacted by the institution of slavery and racism in this country. All right. And speaking of U.S. history and also the legacy of slavery, a lot of people tend to think that slavery has origins in the United States, that we created it. But what's the real? The real is actually what we know to be plantation slavery has its origins in Barbados. The slave codes written in Barbados uh, became what we know to be the basis of plantation slavery and they're pretty detailed. I actually had some years ago the opportunity to visit the Barbados Historical Society where you can see some of the original manifest 
of ships that uh, sailed between Barbados and the Carolinas. Um, what became, you know, North and South Carolina was actually an original colony, a colony of a colony, a subcolony of Barbados, and the seven original governors, white governors of, Bar of, of the Carolinas were white Barbadians. And so that uh, tradition, that staple of institutional slavery that, that was plantation-based originated in what we know to be Bridgetown and St. Lucie, Barbados, and made its way to coastal Carolinas. And then um, we saw cultivated in the rice plantations and then, well, as you know, traveled south throughout the United States and became cotton plantations. But it has its origins from the Caribbean and then also its origins from those that were captured in West Africa. So no, that does slavery, uh, did slavery invent, was it invented or created in the United States? No. Was it unique in being the foundation of the U.S. of U.S. wealth? Absolutely. Um, but no, chattel slavery and plantation-based slavery has, is specifically from the United States, is explicitly derived from the slave codes of Barbados. Ah, you are a historian among them. And we only have about a few minutes left, but there's a question that I've been dying to ask you because essentially you're on the front lines of things and you have your finger on the pulse, you know what's going on. And, you know, we've seen a lot less coverage in terms of the protests and the uprising. Where do you think things will go in terms of media coverage, given that we know these things are still going on? Absolutely. I think what we're seeing right now is that there doesn't seem to be or doesn't appear to be a direct correlation between protests and demonstrations and what is coincidentally, at least initially, a rise in cases as states reopen across the country, a rise in cases of the coronavirus. And so being that, uh, even Dr. Fossey came out and said that there are ways that you can safely protest, that you can safely demonstrate, acknowledging that this is an important issue. And especially as uh, we are approaching a holiday that recognizes is the independence loosely of African Americans and the institution of slavery in the United States, that being Juneteenth. I think we're going to see an initial momentum, um, you know, a, another a shift in momentum where there's a surge in protests and demonstrations and calls for uh, formative change beyond, you know, executive orders that address policing reform, but address some of the institutional inequities that, it, that exist um, beyond policing that disproportionately impact communities of color, whether it be housing, um, whether it be retirement funds, you know, whether it be disproportionate uh, pay inequities that we see. Um, you know, I think especially among Democrats, I think it will be interesting to see how this motivates a progressive movement among young, more liberal uh, Democrats and young progressive Americans who we see may not be turning out for primaries, may not be turning out previously in the 2016 election, but are disproportionately represented at these demonstrations and protests. All right. Thank you so much. That's Kenya Evelyn. And where can they find you, Kenya? Uh, at Live from Kenya, all online, everywhere. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us on The Conversation. Once again, I am Adrian Lawrence, and you can catch us here on The Regular.